Hello, my name is Andrew Gomison, and I would like to welcome you to this edition of the Speaking for Him podcast. It is my privilege each and every week to join you for what I hope will be some encouragement on this journey that we call the Christian life. And today we will be digging into season three, episode one of The Chosen. And I'm really excited to bring you reviews of season three's episode. I think it was a very powerful season, and I think you'll see as we unpack uh, that there's a lot of interesting things to think about. I hope that if you are a first-time listener here to the Speaking for Him podcast, that you will avail yourself of the contact information at the end of the podcast to make contact with me and let me know what you think of the podcast, how I can better serve you in this podcast ministry, and if you just want prayer or more information about what it means to have a life-changing encounter and relationship with the Lord Jesus, I want to hear from you. And if you are a returning listener and you listen with frequency, I would encourage you to share it with your family and friends. That's how more people find out about speaking for him, and we are able to broaden our horizons even more as we seek to encourage the saints to walk worthy of the calling that God gave them, and to walk closer with the Lord Jesus, which really is uh, the only way to success in this life. Jesus said, I am come that you might have life and that you might have it more abundantly. And so it is our goal at Speaking for Him to make sure to provide you with the tools to live a more abundant life in Jesus Christ. And of course, the personal relationship with Jesus is central to that because you cannot follow the Word of God unless you know the living Word, Jesus. With that being said, we will be getting into our review very shortly, but first, let's talk about what is going on. Well, anyone who has been following current events lately knows that San Francisco can be a crazy place. And this past week, the story broke that city officials in San Francisco were proposing the idea of giving a $5 million reparations payment to everyone who could prove their black ancestry within the city limits of San Francisco. Now, of course, there are interesting boxes that you need to check in order to qualify for this, but it really is a very crazy idea. Here's a little bit of Liz Wheeler's take this week from her podcast. And the only reason that they would need some kind of test is because these black people that live in San Francisco were never slaves. They were never wronged by the sin of slavery that once long ago existed in the United States. They were never harmed by the people who would be paying them $5 million because slavery does not exist in our country and it hasn't for a long, long time. In fact, fun fact, slavery was never legal in San Francisco. This city that is proposing paying $5 million in reparations to black people was never a participant in slavery. Now, We've had discussions about similar topics here on this podcast. I have acknowledged with you and 
through these airwaves that America has some great blights upon its character through its history, one of which is the way that we treated American Indians and another of which is the way we treated black Americans. And we should not be proud of those things. Those things are things that stained our past. And we need to be honest about them. We need to report them accurately as we study history and as we teach history. Uh, But we also need to acknowledge how far we've come as a society. And we need to realize that it is the foundation of this country and the Constitution under which we are governed that allowed us to come out from under these horrifying stains of our past. In the case of slavery, we have the 13th Amendment, which did away with slavery in the United States of America, preceded by the Emancipation Proclamation, which was a first step to the abolition of slavery when Abraham Lincoln declared uh, slaves henceforth and forever free. Of course, um, it wasn't codified into the Constitution until the 13th Amendment was ratified later. But But the reality is that people who knew that slavery was wrong stood up and said, we will not abide this in our country, and they fought until it was abolished. And some people will naively say Americans invented slavery or the West invented slavery. But really, it was the West who were the first ones to take on slavery head-on. Great Britain abolished slavery I think about 60 years before we did through the work of William Wilberforce and John Newton. And then we followed suit after the Civil War, abolishing slavery and ratifying the 13th Amendment. The Constitution gives us the power to ratify amendments and to right the wrongs of those in our past. That is one of the most powerful things about living in the United States of America. But I want to bring your attention to a couple things um, that Liz Wheeler said. Predominantly the fact that no one in San Francisco was ever a slave. No one that lives there now, because slavery hasn't been a reality in the United States of America for a long long time, as she said, and no one ever in the history of San Francisco because slavery was never legal there. It's really interesting how people can get up in arms and start tearing down statues or start decrying certain places or people for being racist or for being, uh, slaveholders or whatever uh, bad adjective you want to put in there without doing their due diligence and really thinking about what the person really stood for. I remember back when 
the statues were being torn down in mass in 2020, and I think it carried over into 2021. That was a big thing. And people were tearing down all these southern uh, general statues, and they were saying, well, these are were slave owners. They were for slavery, so we need to tear them down. And then people started talking about tearing down statues of people like Ulysses S. Grant and Winston Churchill, not even realizing what they stood for. Just saying, well, if they are bad, we need to take them down. But what the last three years have taught me is that we need to do our due diligence and study, study, study our history. This is a cliche and something that is often said, but it has never been more true than today. The fact that if we do not learn from history, we will be doomed to repeat it. And we have a whole generation, maybe a generation and a half, of people walking around who believe whatever sound bites they see on the internet, who do not study history for themselves, and who, instead of forming their own opinions based on what they read and listen to, they just get good at citing sound bites from the media. And I realize, as someone who brings news and important topics to the forefront on a podcast, that I need to make sure that I'm not guilty of the same thing. But I think we need to take an honest look at ourselves and realize how far we've come in our society and be thankful for that instead of always reverting back to, well, our ancestors might have been slaves, so that means we're oppressed. I've said this before and I'll say it again. People like Whoopi Goldberg and Oprah Winfrey should be using their success as an opportunity to tell people who are African-American, how they can be successful in America. They should be able to tell them, hey, I was in poverty, but I rose above that and I became a success, and here's how you can too. Instead of endorsing this idea that once oppressed, always oppressed. You know, when I was a teenager, I had to get over myself and realize that in order to have success in this life, I needed to quit thinking of myself as a victim, quit complaining to God about what I didn't have, and start asking God, what do you want me to do with what I do have? And that's an attitude that all of us here in the United States of America need to have, and around the world for that matter. We need to wake up every day and ask ourselves, what does God want me to do with the day that I have. This next clip that I want to share with you is uh, just a conservative young lady talking to liberals about the way they view childbearing and domestic life for women. 
We live in a society that wants you single, fat, broke, and childless, and you're adding to that with your $49.99 donation of apathy. Ask these women where they see themselves in five years professionally and personally. For myself, hopefully, I will have two biological children, one adopted child, and I'll be raising them, which is just as valuable as if I got a PhD or if I was making six figures. It matters just as much, and for me personally, it matters more. So how dare you like degrade married women who want to reproduce and do a good thing for society like you're a problem and the fertility stats show that you're a problem as well because 50.1% of women in the UK are childless by age 30 this is unprecedented and most women want to have kids okay I have a couple things to say about this first of all I applaud this young lady for standing up and speaking truth we have an epidemic of selfishness in our culture today I have never heard more young people say that they don't want to have children and that they don't want to be tied down to a monogamous, lifelong relationship, which is what marriage is. So let me just make a couple points here. First of all, I realize that there are a lot of Christian commentators and that speak into this issue of marriage and warn Christians about making marriage an idol. And to the extent that you can make anything an idol, if you put it above what God wants for your life, then yes, we should be concerned about that. Please don't misunderstand me. Please make sure that you are following God's will and God's timing in this issue. That being said, however, I think it's far greater of an issue to make singleness and pursuing my own way an idol. The reality is that God created marriage so that the human species could survive. He designed our society to be based on families, which are one man and one woman for life, raising children to the glory of God. And we are in a place in our country where for the last two to three years specifically, the world has doubled down on their desire to see children aborted at alarming rates. And we say that there's too many children in the world, so we need to have the right to abort them. And then we turn around the same people who are saying this and say that we need to allow 11 million illegal aliens to stay here in our country because we don't have enough people to fill the jobs that we have. So my question would be, which is it? Do we have enough people? Are we overpopulated? Or are we short on people because we've decided to be selfish in the way we live our lives and not raise children the way God intended us to? It can't be both. It has to be one or the other. And why is it that people who say they are pro-choice, which means making the choice that is best for you, spend so much time ridiculing people who want a husband and want children to raise to the glory of God? Why is that part of your system to put that down and make that a less-than-career so to speak, if you truly believe in choice. 
The problem with the majority of the pro-choice movement is that it only believes in choice if you make the decision that it wants you to make. Liberals only believe in your choices if you make the choice that they want you to make. They only believe in tolerance if you believe what they want you to believe. Because if you start talking about Jesus being the way, they are no longer tolerant. They will do almost anything to stop you from sharing the truth and the hope of Jesus. We had Elizabeth Warren over the last few years go on this warpath against crisis pregnancy centers because they're supposedly fake. Even though there are so many people that work for them that roll their sleeves up and want to love on and care for women in crisis. We need to, as so many pro-lifers that I respect say, make abortion unthinkable. How do we do that? We provide the resources and the support and the love for someone in a crisis pregnancy to realize that it's not only not the only option, but it should be an unthinkable option because there are plenty of people who are willing to come alongside and care for these children. And I have said this before, and I'll say it again. We as believers need to have a higher view of children if we expect the world to understand that life is valuable. How can we expect the world to believe something that we truly do not believe in our hearts? I know that can be a lot to think about, but I hope and pray that you will do that and that you will continue to pray for life to win in this country. God said to the Israelites in Deuteronomy, I have set before you life and death this day. Choose life that thou and thy descendants may live. Well, today I'm going to share with you my review of the first episode of Season 3 of The Chosen. For those that don't know, I have reviewed the first two seasons of The Chosen, and you can find those seasons on their own playlists on my audio library at sermon.net. So if you go to speakingforhim.sermon.net, you click on Sort Options, you can pull down under the series tab the chosen season one or the chosen season two. And the same will be true for the third season, which we are starting to review today. Um, And so I'm excited to dig into this with you. Let's start with our quote of the day. Our quote of the day actually comes out of one of the things that I really like about this episode, and that is really showing um, the relationship of Andrew and Peter. Actually, I think the the series is doing a good job of, of showing us that, but this episode has some really uh, good stuff from Andrew and Peter, and this is a conversation that they had after the Sermon on the Mount. 
Peter says, he started all this introducing you to Jesus, and you introduced me to him. I thank John, and I thank you. I love you. And I just thought that was a really touching uh, moment for them. And I think one of the things I really like about The Chosen is that it really tries to get into uh, the disciples' minds and really kind of convey to you what they might have been thinking as they're going through the events that we do see recorded in the Bible. And so this episode starts out with the Sermon on the Mount because it kind of ends as the Sermon on the Mount is concluding, uh, season two that is. And so season three picks up with the Sermon on the Mount um, beginning. Um, And so we see the sermon uh, being portrayed, and then Jesus is exhausted, so he's taking sustenance from his mother, and um, he is making plans to go off on his own to rejuvenate and sending the disciples to get some rest as well. And I think it's interesting to think about it in this perspective because you kind of get this idea when you're reading the scriptures that they just were with Jesus 24-7, 365 for three years. Um, but I I really do think it's probably more accurate to realize that they would go on trips and then they would, they would go back home for respite. Um, and I like the way this is portrayed when you see... Um, John and James uh, going home to see Zebedee and you see Thomas going with them to stay with them. And then you see Peter and Eden uh, getting back together after Peter's been away for a while. And of course, as I've said, I really like the way they're portraying Peter's wife um, in this series because you know from the scriptures that he was married because Jesus heals his mother-in-law and the only way you have a mother-in-law is if you're married. So I think it's really interesting that they're portraying that relationship. And also because Peter will write about marriage in first Peter three. And when you think about that in the context of Peter having his own marriage, you realize that he was probably writing from experience uh, when he wrote about men living in an understanding manner toward their wives So I like the way that Dallas is kind of taking some of what is in the epistles and building it into what he's doing with the chosen and saying, this is some of the experiences that may have led to what would be written in the epistles. And he'll do that at another point in the season. And I'll point it out. Uh, when it does happen, but I really like to think about it in that context. There's a lot of interesting things in this episode, but I think one of the biggest overarching things is that Jesus does his Sermon on the Mount. And what we see for the remainder of the episode is the way different people react to the sermon and how it affects them and the relationships around them. In the beginning of the episode, we actually see a flashback where Matthew is disowned by his parents because he has chosen to be a tax collector. 
Um, and so, and he's pitted against them because he's actually their tax collector. They point out that he has basically disowned his Jewish faith in order to become a tax collector so he is no longer their son. And in the Sermon on the Mount, you see his reaction to the fact that if you ha- if anybody has anything against you, you should go be reconciled to them before you bring your worship to God. And you see a similar reaction in Andrew. Um, and so you see these people having their reaction to the Sermon on the Mount. In the context of the Chosen, the Sermon on the Mount is what convinces Judas Iscariot to be a follower of Jesus, and he goes to Jesus and asks to be a disciple. You get some little hints through this episode about how Judas may be focused on the wrong thing, um, because he mentions in this episode that he thinks that Jesus is the Messiah, but then he says and he will help us overthrow Rome. So that kind of lends itself to future events, because I've always thought that one of the reasons why Judas betrayed Jesus was because he thought that it would give Jesus an opportunity to show his power over Rome, number one. And number two, because maybe because Jesus wasn't doing things the way Judas expected, that he was frustrated, and so he thus betrayed Jesus. But whatever the reason, you see some foreshadowing in this episode when he talks to his sister and says, I'm going to follow Jesus. Judas is portrayed as a very impulsive person who doesn't really think through things all that well, and I think that really comes through when he betrays Jesus. And so having a little bit of foreshadowing and talking about some of the other ways in which he's been impulsive is a good thing. Uh, You see some characters introduced in this episode that will come to prominence later on. Uh, You see Joanna, who is the wife of Herod Stewart, who it is mentioned in scripture, followed along with the disciples on some of their journeys and supported the ministry of Jesus. So you see her coming forward with a valuable piece of cloth and saying, I want to give this to the ministry of Jesus. And you see Andrew struggling with anxiety. You saw that a little bit in the second season when he he is dealing with um, Jesus being brought in for questioning, uh, which is one of those scenes that... uh, is not in the Bible, and really, I probably wouldn't have written the way that Dallas did, but you see the disciples just being afraid, and Jesus saying, don't worry, I am in control. And so, you see Matthew reconciling with his family, And you see Andrew dealing with his anxiety and realizing that he needs to give it over to God. You see Andrew get an opportunity to go visit John the Baptist in prison because of Joanna, the wife of Herod Stewart. And the conversation that Andrew and John have in the jail really resonated with me. And I think part of it was because Andrew... um, 
is my namesake, and part of it is because I know what it's like to feel like I always want to be in control. And so the fact that he's my namesake and then also the fact that I struggle with anxiety sometimes about not being in control made this particular exchange resonate with me. Andrew, in all that he said to those thousands of people, there was something just for you. For what you are going through, there always is. What was it? Something that stuck with you. Don't be anxious. Can, can you add a single hour to your life by being anxious? It sounds like him. What else? But seek first. Seek first the kingdom of God. And this righteousness. Even more like him. So if you want to help me, Andrew. If you want to help me. Listen to him. Go home. And do what he says. That's what I want. Another character that is introduced in this episode that will come to prominence later is Jairus. And it is mentioned that he has a wife and a daughter. So those who know the story will know his significance, but I'm not going to spoil it here because it's going to come up in a future episode. So all in all, I thought this was a, a really good episode to kick off the third season. Um, you see a reconciliation between Matthew and his family, uh, which is good because Matt, first of all, because Matthew was willing to humble himself. And second of all, because his father had heard the sermon and was impacted by it too. I think that was the implication. And so I, I, I love the fact that for the disciples, this sermon was not just words on a page. It can be kind of interesting to note when you're going through the Sermon on the Mount that actually the Sermon on the Mount was primarily taught to his disciples. Because the verses in the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount actually say, And seeing the multitudes, he went up into a mountain and he opened his mouth and taught his disciples, saying. So even though there were other people there obviously benefiting from what Jesus was teaching, his primary target in his Sermon on the Mount was his disciples and getting them to realize the truths that he was sharing because then they could share them with others. Another cool moment that you see in this episode is Andrew going to Mary Magdalene to apologize to her um, because he had been harsh with her at, uh, toward the end of season two because of his anxiety. Uh, he had said things to her that he regretted and he went and apologized to her and it's kind of significant that she will 
after that say, I don't think anyone has ever apologized to me before. So again, these things, a lot of them were not particularly in the narrative of the Bible, but definitely within the scope of plausibility. And so I I was just really blessed uh, by this episode. I think the final major thing that I want to mention in regards to this episode is just the fact that Peter um, comes home, uh, still, I think, largely referred to as Simon within the context of this show, but he comes home and he's with Eden and he's excited to be with Eden, um, but there's definitely this readjustment to being home, and so that's going to continue to cause some tension for them as they try to get close to one another again after he's been on the road, and that's a reality for anyone uh, that travels for work, let alone traveling for the kingdom of God. Um, You know, we know many stories of people that travel in ministry, and that can take a strain on their marriage, and there's definitely a period of re-entry for anyone that travels on business. So I like the way that they portrayed that and how they are actually portraying them as a genuine couple that has to navigate the difficulties of being married to one another. As I said, I think it really is plausible because of what we read in the first epistle of Peter about marriage. So I really think that this is a an extremely well-rounded, well-put-together episode, and I'm excited for what the future episodes have to bring. It was an action-packed season, as I said, with a lot to think about. And I think even when you have a scene that isn't particularly word-for-word from Scripture, it really just weaves the truths of Scripture very well. And so I would encourage you to take the chance to watch The Chosen if you haven't already, um, or if you've been waiting for Season 3, it is on the app in its entirety now, totally for free. So you can watch it and give your own thoughts. I would encourage you to write in with any of your own observations from this episode. Um, And if you give me your permission, I would be willing to share that on a future episode of this podcast. I really like the human approach to the disciples that we are given. Um, Because a lot of times we just read one sentence, well, this happened and the disciples didn't understand it. But to really think about how they were impacted by the things that Jesus did, and particularly with the Sermon on the Mount. That's just an amazing perspective to have on those words as they are in the Scriptures. And of course, as Dallas himself would say, this series is not meant to replace Scripture. It's meant to drive people to Scripture, to cause them to read it and to be more in love with Jesus than they ever have been before. And that would be my hope too, is that you would watch The Chosen and that you would be even more interested in getting to know the God of the Bible who 
who loves you and wants to have a personal relationship with you so very much. Well, that's about all I have for you today on the podcast. And so I hope that you've enjoyed this. I hope that if it ministers to you, that you will share it with your family and friends. And I hope above all that you will have a great week and keep serving the best of masters. Thank you for listening to today's episode. Your host has been Andrew Gomison, founder of Speaking for Him. For more information on today's show and to leave us comments and voicemails, visit speakingforhim.blogspot.com. You can find Andrew's ministry at speakingforhim.com. That's speaking, the number four, H-I-M. You can also interact with us at facebook.com slash speakingforhim and on Twitter at speakingforhim. And when you look for us on iTunes and Stitcher, let us know what you think of the podcast by leaving a rating and review. 